We're currently studying the book of Hebrews. The, the title of this series is Jesus is Greater, um, which is the heartbeat of this book. And if you have been around for the past few weeks, you've, you've seen that over and over again. And there's nothing new under the sun this morning. You're going to encounter much of the same. If you, if you haven't studied the book of, of Hebrews, you're, you're definitely in for a treat. And if you have studied the book of Hebrews, you are also in for a treat because this book is amazing. Um, it, it shows us how the, the entire Bible is threaded together into a, a tapestry, really, that tells uh, one beautifully interwoven story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the whole thing. And so if you come in this morning and, and you've historically ascribed to this idea that the Bible is just a bunch of piecemealed stories that have just been kind of put together loosely, um, I think this will be a, a really helpful uh, series to dive into with us. At its heart, the book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation. The author of Hebrews himself says at the end of the letter, chapter 13, verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It's a warning. It's, a, it's an appeal, which is why you have that phrase, bear with. Warnings can be found throughout this entire book. We're going to encounter about a half dozen of them. We looked at the first of those last Sunday. They shape the doctrinal teaching of the book. They're, they're meant to spur us to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. In other words... The warnings are not just for those within the Christian population who are not really followers of Jesus. The warnings are also God's grace in helping Christ followers persevere in the faith. The, the first wilderness generation of Israel was, was brought out of Egypt and baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. And yet, if you read the Old Testament story, you know that most of that uh, first wilderness generation failed to trust God and did not enter into the promised land. So if you take that wilderness language and you apply it to the church, Jesus has inaugurated a new wilderness wandering for a new covenant people. That's you and me. Uh, if you're a Christian, we're on pilgrimage, making our way into Jesus's eternal rest, the new heaven and earth, the, the final promised land. But some of those who are part of the visible gathering of God's people will not enter that rest. And because we haven't crossed the finish line yet, the author of Hebrews declares to us the urgency of continuing to fix our eyes on Jesus. And he actually helps us to do that very thing. He doesn't just tell us to see and savor Jesus, right? He puts this Jesus whom he wants us to see and, and savor uh, on full display in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. And if you have been around, you've seen that over and over again over the course of the past few weeks. Yes, this book is meant to sober us, but it's also meant to bring us great comfort and joy. Last week's passage, if you were here uh, you'll note was a sobering passage as we looked at the first of those warning passages found in this book of the Bible. This morning's passage presents us with a message meant to bring us great comfort, hope, and freedom. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be in verses 5 through 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one underneath uh, one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if, you, if you don't own a Bible or you have a a translation that's really difficult to follow, please take one of those Bibles as the church's gift to you. Um, let me do this. Let me go ahead and pray because we got quite a bit of ground to cover and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, you have gifted us with a chest full of treasure this morning to behold. And I pray that with a passage like Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, it would be very easy for us to pull out our notebooks and bullet point 
a dozen or more different things that have to do with who you are, Jesus, and what you've come to accomplish for us and walk out of this room with a more robust Christology but, but miss the very beauty, miss the seeing and savoring of, of who you are and what you have accomplished for us. And so, uh, God, would you rescue us from that? Uh, would, you, would you help us to see, most certainly, through this passage of Scripture, the fullness of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us? Uh, would you also enable us by your grace to savor it? Holy Spirit, we need you to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive. And so would you move, would you work, Spirit of God, this morning in a way that, that only you can, uh, can do. And we'll give you all the glory for it, God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Previously on Hebrews, I've, I've been waiting a few weeks to say that. We, we have to get far, far enough in that I can actually kind of do the, the series recap, you know, like you like you see on your shows that you watch. Um, by the way, if you've missed the first few weeks of this series, uh, I do think it would be well worth your time to go back and engage that. Uh, go online, listen to the podcast, catch yourself up, so to speak. I'll give you a, a little bit of a brief summary this morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us, the summary of chapter one, very simply, Jesus is the most supremely valuable treasure in all the universe. That's Hebrews chapter one. He's the radiance of the glory of God the visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, God made visible. He's the creator of all things, pre-existent deity who was around long before the manger scene in Bethlehem. He's the sustainer of all things, upholding and governing the universe by the word of his power. He's the ultimate high priest who made purification for sins through the sacrifice of himself on our behalf. The one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a declarative, it is finished. He's the, the rightful heir of all things as our sin-conquering, death-conquering, Satan-conquering, triumphant king. He's the final revelation of God, God's ultimate and final message to mankind. And finally, he's superior to the angels in name, honor, vocation, existence, and status. That's Hebrews Chapter 1. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we looked at it last week. Therefore, pay attention to him. Don't drift from him. Don't neglect him. Keep looking at him. Keep seeing and savoring him. Keep trusting him. And now, coming out of that first warning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the author of Hebrews is going to continue to put this supremely valuable Son of God on full display. He, he, here's what he's going to do. He's going to make it as hard as possible for us not to see and savor Jesus Christ. Um, the best way I can explain it to you is uh, the passage that we're about to dive into. It, it's as if the author of Hebrews is spinning a jewel. And, he, and he's spinning it just slowly enough that you can see each facet. But not slow enough that you can get the fullness of, of, of everything that's to be uh, mind out of each of those facets, you might say. And so uh, what I would expect you to experience and, and leave this place having encountered it is a, a fire hydrant of the gospel uh, unleashed on you in such a way that you go, I want to dive deeper. Um, I want to know more about these various facets of, of the cross of Jesus Christ and the implications for me. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's not looking to give you a systematic theology of any of the things that we're about to dive into. He's looking to hose you so that you walk away and go, Jesus is glorious and magnificent. And I don't know what to do with this Jesus except bend my knee to him and worship him. 
and stand in awe of him. He begins by continuing the Jesus is greater than angels argument that he began back in chapter 1. He says here, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Again, the author of Hebrews continues the Jesus is greater than angels argument. And he does so by referring back to Psalm chapter 8. It's a very brief psalm that... I think it's worth slowing down to look at for just a second. We actually looked at this back in our summer series on the Psalms, you may recall. Psalm 8 begins with these words. They're up on the screen. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have set in place. So he's in awe of of creation. He says, verse 4, What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Psalmist goes on to say, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When you read Psalm 8, what you encounter is that the psalmist David is overwhelmed with awe as he thinks about the glory and honor that God has bestowed upon human beings. You could say that Psalm 8 is David's commentary on Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Man made in the image of God, given dominion over all other created things. But look at what the author of Hebrews does with Psalm 8. He doesn't use Psalm 8 to go back to the first Adam in the garden so long ago, but rather the last Adam, Jesus Christ. He says this in verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is Jesus, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is the one with dominion over all of creation in the world to come. He's the only one who could reverse the, the effects of Adam's fall in that garden so long ago. Angels could never accomplish what Jesus accomplished. We talked about that back in chapter 1. In, in some sense, this is the continuation of the Jesus is greater than angels argument. But it's also a shift into this Jesus is greater than fallen man argument that the author of Hebrews is now going to make. That, that Adam failed to carry out his divine purpose. We know that. If you read Genesis 3, you, you, you see the story of the fall of man. That Adam failed to exercise dominion over all of creation. Adam failed to rule over creation for God's glory. We need another Adam to succeed where the first Adam failed. Enter Jesus onto the divine stage that, by the way, he created in the first place, which is quite amazing. Paul lays it out really well in Romans 5. It'd be worth your time to go read that this week. Jesus is the last Adam, Paul says, who accomplished all that the first Adam failed to accomplish. That Jesus succeeded 
in, in living the life that we could never live, in living the life that Adam failed to live, a perfect sinless life. And Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, thus redeeming us from Adam's curse. I, I love that, that this is the moment that the author of Hebrews presents us with the name of Jesus for the very first time. You notice that? We haven't seen it up to this point in the book of Hebrews. That in pointing us to the incarnation, God taking on flesh, he declares that the author who became a character in his own story has a name. His name is Jesus. Isn't it amazing how just saying the name of Jesus has such power? I've heard some of you say that you love being in this place as we gather because the name of Jesus just gets proclaimed over and over and over again. There's something about that name. We actually sing those words from time to time. There's power in the name of Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 of of Hebrews chapter 2, if you were around for our series through the book of Philippians, uh, you'll notice that these words sound eerily similar to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Verses 8 through 11, what's known as the creed of Christ, says this. Paul says, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, there it is, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That it was precisely in conquering such a humiliating, suffering death that Jesus is all the more worthy of being exalted. That Jesus, you could say it this way, Jesus' humiliation is the very basis for his exaltation. It's a, it's a reversal of sorts. The greatest reversal in, in all the world. Where Jesus had once gone from the highest position imaginable in the universe to the lowest He now is exalted from the lowest position imaginable to the highest. I love how C.S. Lewis says it in his work, Miracles. He says this. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture, Lewis says, of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before his, he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Jesus is the greatest superhero in all of human history is really what Lewis is saying there. The crucified servant now declared the resurrected, exalted Lord. Coming back to Hebrews chapter 2, the author says this, moving into verse 10, he says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That that it was fitting that the perfect author of this divine drama would enter in as a character in that very story. That he would break the spell of sin's curse by suffering in the place of suffering sinners like you and me. That, That there's a sense in which God the Father made Jesus Christ the Son perfect through suffering. Now, now what does that mean? We gotta stop here for a second, I think, because the question could become: how can a perfect, sinless Jesus be made perfect? I mean, does that imply that at some point he was 
flawed because if he's imperfect, if he's flawed, he can't die in the place of sinners because he's one himself. What do we do with that? The word translated perfect there in verse 10, it comes from the Greek word teleao, which simply means to consummate or, or to complete. It's not that Jesus went from flawed to flawless, but rather Jesus went from incomplete in a sense to complete. Think about it this way. If, if Jesus doesn't live a perfect, obedient, sinless life on our behalf, we're done for. Jesus didn't just come to die the sinner's death that we deserve to die. He came to live the obedient, sinless life that we could never live. He became obedient all the way to to Golgotha. It's what theologians call the double truth of the gospel. We actually just sang about that. This is where it's so crucial for us to understand that, that the gospel is Jesus died for my sins, but it's so much more than that. Eternal life comes at a price, namely perfection. Live out the great commandments of God perfectly and eternal life is yours. We need a hero who will not only die in the place of sinners, but gift them his perfect righteous record to hold before a holy God. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He says, We are accepted and approved of God as the heirs of salvation, not out of regard to the excellency of our own virtue or goodness, or any moral fitness therein, but only on account of the dignity and moral fitness of Christ's righteousness. Or as Paul says so simply in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gets my sin, he gives me his righteousness. The most gloriously unfair trade in all of human history The gospel is just as much about Jesus living the perfect righteous life that we could never live as it is about Jesus dying the sinner's death that we deserve to die. When you see Jesus being obedient all the way to Golgotha, you're meant to rejoice in that too, which which changes the way we read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every time you see Jesus not fail, he's putting together a record that he's going to give to you. That's unbelievable. He lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live. And he gifts his record to us by grace through faith. That's the gospel. We need Jesus to live a perfect, obedient life all the way to the cross. To complete what Adam failed to complete. There's that language. To perfect it. To complete it. To consummate it. Without Jesus' suffering in both life and death, we have no hope of salvation. And thus Jesus was made perfect, verse 10. Complete in his role as the hero of redemptive history through his suffering. And as the hero, the pioneer of our salvation, Jesus brings sons and daughters to glory, the author of Hebrews says. I love the way Kent Hughes words this uh, in, in his commentary on verse 10. He says, The picture is of a great family procession as it winds its way through this life and moves ever upward to glory. Leading the procession is the pioneer, the captain, the champion of our salvation. He has gone before us as perfect man, Lived a, living a perfect, sinless life, overcoming every temptation and hardship, dying as a perfect atonement for all our sins, resurrected to glory, and now leading us over his blood-stained path to the same glory. I love how this procession is one of a family, which if you're like me, If your story includes brokenness and divorce, maybe it's hard to wrap your mind around this. In Christ, we are beloved children of the living God. 
And he's going to unpack that even more. Not only are we children, we're siblings. If you continue to read verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. In other words, we share a common humanness with Jesus. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. As John says in chapter 1 of his gospel account, Jesus sanctifies us. He sets us apart through his perfect, obedient life and sacrificial death. He's the sanctifier. We are the sanctified. All made possible by Jesus having become one of us. Entering the slums of human history, you might say. As C.S. Lewis so eloquently says, he says, The Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. And not just sons and daughters, as I just mentioned, but siblings. Look at the end of verse 11. He says this. He says, That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's a reference to Psalm 22, which in Hebrews 2, Jesus is attributed with declaring from that very psalm that we are his siblings, that he shed his blood in order to bring us into an eternal family. He goes on to say it again in a different way in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Both quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. I will put my trust in him. Just as we are called to put our trust in God, so Jesus put his trust in the Father. You see it over and over again in the gospel accounts. Jesus depending on the Father. Again, it's a a declaration that Jesus identifies with you, with me. And again, that second quote, Behold, I and the children God has given me. The prophet Isaiah, if you go back and read, links himself with his two sons as heirs of God's promise. Similarly, here in Hebrews 2, Jesus associates himself with us as co-heirs of all of God's promises. Again, he's identifying with you. He's identifying with me. It's not just that God is our father, but Jesus is our big brother. Now go back to chapter 1 and connect the dots and think about this for a second. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature is not ashamed to call you his sibling. That's quite remarkable. You can imagine what impact that would have had on a young church experiencing troubles and persecution. Jesus saying, I've been there. I identify with you. You're family to me, and I'm going to bring you to glory. Maybe those words are are what we need to hear this morning personally. Jesus saying to us, I've been there. Whatever you're going through, I identify with you. You're family to me, and I'm going to bring you to glory. If you need encouragement, it's right here, Hebrews chapter 2. And just in case that wasn't enough, the author continues to heap encouragement on top of encouragement. He says this in verse 14. He says, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, we're human, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. James mentioned that earlier. Human beings, you and I, we've been enslaved to Satan, sin, and death ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Genesis 3, going back to the beginning of the story, that Jesus came to reverse the curse. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, again, he came to do what the first Adam failed to do. He had to become human. The wages of sin is death. He had to take on a killable body in order to die on behalf of sinners like you and me. It's really incredible to think about what Jesus accomplished in his death. I'm reminded of 
Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 and 56. Famous words. The Apostle Paul says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's like he's mocking death. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That God has had a plan to destroy death since before death entered the picture. And Jesus is the one, as we see in Hebrews chapter 2, bringing that plan to fulfillment. I don't know about you, but I love the irony that death began to die when Jesus died on the cross. That Satan thought that he had won. He thought death had won. But we see the death of death and the death of Christ. As Athanasius once said, Jesus accepted death at the hands of men, thereby completely to destroy it in his own body. Presently, death, it's like a bee buzzing around without a stinger, you could say. Still in our faces, still something that we experience, it's still something we can't escape, but Jesus bore the sting of death in our place. He absorbed, you might say, the, the venom and drained it of its potency. The sting of death is sin. Jesus bore our sin. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. But three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering those great enemies of sin and death so that we can now confidently sing words like this up on the screen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Oh, death, where's your sting? You don't have a stinger anymore. Oh, hell, where's your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. That, that's not just a message for Easter Sunday to be stored away in a file cabinet the other 51 weeks of the year. Again, Athanasius, in his great work entitled On the Incarnation, he says this. He says, He, Jesus accepted and bore upon the cross a death inflicted by others, and those others his special enemies, a death which to them was supremely terrible and by no means to be faced. And he did this in order that by destroying even this death, a humiliating death by crucifixion, he might himself be believed to be the life and the power of death be recognized as finally annulled. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred for the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. That's why you can wear crosses around your neck and adorn your homes with them and you not be absurd in doing so. That the cross, meant to be a symbol of dishonor and disgrace, as Athanasius says, has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. Only Jesus can do that. None of us is sufficient to accomplish that work. Only Jesus can take the stinger out of death. Where sin is pardoned by way of the cross of Jesus Christ, death has no sting. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, Paul says. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That kind of thinking, I've said this before, that kind of believing creates an army of missionaries who cannot be stopped. What's the worst you can do? Kill me? Then Jesus... And it's not just the destruction of death that Jesus accomplished, according to Hebrews chapter 2, but the devil himself. The death blow has been delivered to the serpent Satan's head. He's bleeding out. If, if you find yourself in a present tense battle with the enemy and his army of darkness, that's good news this morning. The devil is bleeding out as we speak. Another way we could say it, Jesus is the greatest dragon slayer of all time. 
He is our victory over the powers of evil, namely Satan and his demons. All authority has been given to him. He goes on and says in verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Adam. Again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that salvation is not for angels. They actually look in longingly trying to understand the work of redemption in our lives, which is amazing. Salvation is, is for us. We are the offspring of Abraham. Paul says it in Galatians 3. He says, For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Who are the offspring of Abraham? Those who trust in Christ. If you are a Christ follower, you are the offspring of Abraham. And thus salvation is for you. If you trust in Christ, if you kind of take what we've seen so far this morning in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, think about this. If you trust in Christ, you have the comfort of knowing that Jesus identifies with you as your brother. You have the hope of knowing that Jesus is committed to bringing you to glory. And you have the freedom to stare even death in the face and shout gain at the top of your lungs. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism begins with question one. What is thy only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. All possible because Jesus, the author, became a character in his own divine drama. Verse 17. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That, that Jesus had to be made like those he represented, human. He had to become human in order to function as our high priest. The, the adjectives here are not to be glanced over. Jesus is merciful and faithful. He's merciful. In taking on flesh, he saw your greatest need, my greatest need. Let's make this personal. And he did something about it. He had gut-wrenching emotion in the deepest recesses of his being for you, for me. And he entered into our plight. And not only that, he's faithful. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only that... Going back to a couple weeks ago, he's faithful now in interceding for you, praying for you to persevere in the faith, to keep fighting the good fight. And notice another thing in verse 17, what Jesus accomplished in taking on human flesh. Again, we just continue to spin the jewel and see yet another facet. It says he made propitiation for the sins of the people. That, that word propitiation simply means that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of wrath-deserving sinners. That God's love does not make God's holiness expendable. The love of God is, is not made manifest by God sweeping our sins under the rug and acting like they didn't happen. 
His love is a holy love. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way that God can forgive sinners without sacrificing his justice on the altar of his mercy. The cross of Jesus Christ is where the mercy and justice of God collide. God is able to to vindicate his righteous reputation by punishing Jesus for our sin. In other words, Jesus is the means by which God can simultaneously punish sin and forgive sinners. It's a beautiful thing. In Jesus Christ, the perfect man embraced the role of perfect high priest, offering himself as the perfect sacrifice to appease God's wrath on our behalf. As Philip Hughes says in his commentary, our hell Jesus made his, that his heaven might be ours. It's beautiful. What are the implications of that? Jesus, our wrath bearer? Well, I mean, I would dare say most of us are probably not going to the local temple um, and, and having a high priest offer sacrifices on our behalf. You're probably not going to do that sometime between now and next Sunday, right? But we do battle, let's be honest, many of us, with this idea that there is condemnation for us who are in Christ when there is not. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we talk about it all the time around here. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to, if you're a Christian, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to to live clawing your way in an effort to try to appease God's wrath. Jesus has done that. It's finished. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Maybe one of the most helpful and hopeful things I could say this morning. God is not waiting for some future better version of you to love. Isn't that good news? God is not waiting for some future better version of you to love. He loves you right now perfectly in Christ. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you. We're meant to marvel at the grace of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. As we look at Hebrews chapter 2. And guess what? There's more good news. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, Jesus, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus took on human flesh. And what that means is that through Jesus, God knows everything that you and I experience in our humanness. He was tempted just like we are, yet without sin, the Bible tells us. Thus, he can not only empathize, with you and I and help us in our moments of temptation. He actually knows what it's like to suffer in a way that you and I will never know. Suffering that doesn't give in to temptation. Again, I quote Kent Hughes from his commentary. He says, think of it this way. Which bridge has undergone the greatest stress? The one that collapses under its first load of traffic or the one that bears the same traffic morning and evening, year after year? Over and over over and over again, you see Jesus not giving in to temptation on your behalf. He knows the greatest stress of temptation the world has ever known. He's not removed from our reality. He surrounded himself with everything that makes this world sad. He cares for you deeply. Let me make it personal again. He wants to help you in the fight to believe. He loves you. He identifies with you as a brother Kent Hughes, uh, again, one last quote from him. 
And I find this incredibly encouraging. As you sit with the scriptures, maybe even sit with this quote uh, as a supplement to your reading this week. Hughes says this. He says, Jesus never sinned, but he did suffer immense temptation. And his heart bears the blessed scars of sympathy. The call of Hebrews chapter 2 is to keep seeing and savoring this Jesus. Keep basking in the wonder of the one that holds stars in the sky. That he cares for you. That he identifies with you. That he calls you his family. That he promises to bring you to glory. That yes, you may encounter hardship. You may even encounter the fatherly discipline of the Lord. But there is no wrath. Because of Jesus' wrath-bearing work as our great high priest, we are held by an unshakable, unfathomable 